Um, listen, thanks for being here. Uh, I know when you come, uh, there's this balance of, right, it's kind of vacation and it's kind of sessions and you kind of get caught in the middle of those things. And so I'll just say to you, if there's a, you know, if you need to take a morning session off sometime during the week, that's fine. Skip Daniel's session on Thursday morning. Okay. It'll be great. Um, we talked yesterday, uh, we started talking about Job and about Job's life. And we talked about how yesterday we tried to help answer the why question, right? That when we come up against pain and suffering and trials, difficulty, it's why him, why her, why me, why now, why this? Um, and so we kind of moved our way through and we said the way that we answer the why question is that we can't know, right? We can't know the answer because we're trying uh, to understand for our own sanctification that we love God for God's sake and not for the blessings that he provides um, for our lives. So today we're going to move on from the why question and we're going to talk more about the how question, right? How are we going to make it through difficulties, trials, sufferings, when those things uh, come, into, come into our lives? And the answer is, I'll just give you the answer before we even really get started. The answer is comfort. That's how we're going to do it. And so we're going to look at three different kinds of comfort. We're going to look at bad comfort, we're going to look at self-comfort, and then we're going to look at supreme comfort. So those are the three things uh, that we're going to look at this morning. And I was trying to think of a way um, that we've probably all experienced comfort before that's maybe not necessarily the greatest. So have you ever been, uh, maybe you've done that, I've done this, maybe you've done this. You ever tried to say the right thing and you end up saying exactly the wrong thing, right? So I was trying to think about how that works in our lives. So I was trying to think of uh, an illustration right? For those of you who are here this morning. Um, and I was thinking about, about, I don't know, 10 or so years ago, um, I went to the beach with my wife's uh, family. We all, we all went to Panama City uh, Beach and we were in the, kind of a high-rise condo. So we were all going down to the beach together one morning. And so we get on the elevators way up high and we're on our way down. There's 13 of us. So 13 of us, all of our beach stuff, were crammed very tightly into this little elevator. And on the way down the elevator, the button goes off the stops and a young uh, African-American male, probably 10 years old, gets on the elevator, stands right in the front. All of us are kind of gathered right around him in the back. And it, it's a little unnerving, right, for him. I'm sure at his age, he doesn't know any of us. And my wife's dad, uh, my father-in-law, notice how I did call him my wife's dad, not my father-in-law in this moment. Um, he's got this thing in him that everyone has to feel good. You know people like this? Like they just, they can't not say, if there's silence, they can't not say something and just let it, like he's got, he wants everybody to feel good, right? He wants everyone to be encouraged. So the young man that got on the elevator, real sharp looking, uh, real sharp looking young man. And so out of nowhere, the elevator's going down, it's really slow elevator's going down. And out of nowhere, my father-in-law says, hey buddy, you ever been kidnapped? So we spent the rest of the time between there and the floor profusely apologizing for my father-in-law and trying to prove to this young man that, you know, we're not right-wing supremacists, right? They're going to kidnap him and take him away, right? And so sometimes in trying to say the right thing, we end up saying the wrong thing. And um, that's what we're going to see in Job's life today. But even in the examples of saying the wrong thing, um, we're going to learn that we find supreme comfort. Uh, in, a, in, in a different spot, in a different place. Now, remember Job's, uh, Job's reality. He just lost his 10 kids, their spouses, all of his grandchildren, all of his financial wealth. His wife, for lack of a better way to say it, kind of cusses him out, encourages him to cuss God out just to give up. So he's experiencing both ends of that reality that we talked about, that tension that we talked about um, yesterday, because Job's life at this point is very extreme right Job's life so he's going through this really really tough spot this really really tough 
uh, patch. And so um, here's how bad it is. If you look at Job chapter 3, if you want to turn there, if you've got a copy of Scripture, if not, the verses will be on the screen. But Job chapter 3, verse 1, and then pick it back up in verse 8. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And he said, let those who curse it, or those who literally in the uh, original language, those who curse the days, curse this Uh, this day. So Job says, listen, my life is so bad right now that he cursed his own birthday. He's like, I cursed the day that I was born. He says, let anybody else, all you, which is a weird occupation, but all you day cursers out there, anyone who curses days, you should curse this day. That's where Job is. And I'm sure emotionally, probably all of us have found ourselves in a similar point, in a similar position. Maybe it's been recently, maybe it's been more historically in your life, but we've all kind of found ourselves at that bottom low uh, spot um, in our lives. But it's okay, because Job has comfort on the way, right? He's got friends. You've got friends. Job has friends that are going to come to him. And so Job chapter 2 talks about um, here they come. And when they, they his friends, he's got three of them, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And when they saw him at a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept and tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. So I'll just stop right there just for a second. I'll read the rest of the verse. But I would just say, if you're going to encourage someone, right, you're going to see someone, you're going to try to provide them some biblical encouragement. The best way to not do that is when you lay eyes on them for the first time to start crying and wailing loudly. That's what Job's friends did. So if you're going to see somebody in the hospital, just fake it for a little while, okay? Maybe they're in bad shape, but don't, don't start yelling and crying. That's what Job's friends, that, that's, where they be, that's where they begin their experience uh, with Job. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, this is the Jewish concept of sitting Shiva. That's what they call it, sitting Shiva. When, you, uh, when someone is suffering, typically when they've lost a family member or a great loss in their lives, you go and you sit with them, an extended family member, a good friend, you sit with them, you stay with them for seven days. You just stay. And you do whatever they need. You cook meals for them. You transport kids for them. You do their work outside the house. They were in an uh, agrarian society and I, you would do their agricultural work for them. As they're going through the grieving mourning process, you're just with them for seven days. Now, one of the unique things that you're going to see in Job's three friends, you, you, I think you, we saw it right there, seven days, seven nights, and no one spoke a word. Nobody says a word to them. They're just there. They're present. They're going to help him. But after seven days, they start talking, and they start conversing with with Job. And I'll just come, I'm just going to give you a couple examples of that. Job chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I believe this is Bildad. I'm, I'm not 100%, but I think this is Bildad speaking. Job, remember who uh, that was innocent was ever punished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow in iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So Bildad says to Job, Job, look, when you walk by a wheat field, what you know is that somebody planted the wheat and the wheat led to a harvest. So the reason, Job, I mean, this is the obvious thing, right? He's saying the reason that you're reaping the consequences of pain and suffering that you're reaping right now is that you've obviously sown sinful seeds. And what God has done is he's allowed these terrible, awful things to grow up in your life to pay you back for the bad things that you've done. That's Job's encouragement. 
That, that's, what, that's what he gets from his base. Job chapter 8, uh, verse 4, I believe this is Eliaphaz. He says, if your children have sinned against him, then he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Now, can you imagine looking at somebody and saying, well, Job, the reason that your kids died is because they sinned. And so they sinned, and so God just delivered them into the hand. I mean, they're just getting back. They earned this reality, Job. Because, I mean, God wouldn't operate. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do it any other way. He wouldn't do it any other way. Um, the thing that I, um, I, re- I, as I studied this, I thought for Job's friends, um, their words are ignorant, but their, science, their, their silence was brilliant, right? Um, what people need most from us in the middle of devastating circumstances is not saying the exact right thing because when we try to say the exact right thing, most of the time we're going to get it wrong anyway. So just the Bible is beautiful in its simplicity. Romans, weep with those who weep and what? Mourn with those who mourn. It's that, it's really that easy. The word there to sympathize is the word nude and it means to rock back and forth. Have you ever been with somebody who's in shock from trauma? And they rock, right? And the idea is you're just there to rock with them. You're just there, be with them. You don't say the right thing. You don't have to say the magical uh, unlock, right, the key to everything that's going on in their lives. As a matter of fact, Dr. Um, John Phillips, he's a theologian, he says that um, the reason Job doesn't speak for seven days is because the Middle Eastern custom was whenever you went to someone's home, they could not speak until you first spoke to them. So it's kind of like Job knows what these guys are going to say, right? And so for seven days, he doesn't say a word. He won't say it because they can't talk until he talks. So he knows what they're going to say, so he just doesn't say it. I'm going to clock it, all right? We'll go 20 seconds. How uncomfortable is silence? <laughs> That's 20 seconds. Seven days. Job won't say a word to these guys because he knows what they're going to say. So seven days worth of uncomfortable silence. Finally, after seven days, Job, I don't know, maybe, maybe he grunted. And they were like, oh, we heard a word. And then these guys jump right on in and bam, here's why. Because you're reaping the sins of your own life, Job. You need to repent. Your children are just reaping the sins of the things that they've done. And really, the question that... Job's friends are trying to get him to, uh, to understand and answer. And it's really a question it's for us a lot of times. It's the question underneath the question is this whole idea, the theological, uh, your big theology word for the day is retribution. So it's this whole idea of divine retribution. Retribution is this, is this idea of uh, divine payback, right? Um, some people, uh, we have other terms for it. We call it karma, we call it those. But this whole idea, when we suffer, when we hurt, is God paying me back? Is this retribution for the things? That's what retribution is, where you get what you've earned, right? And we wonder, did I do something? Did, or am I not doing something? Remember yesterday we talked about punching the religious buttons? So I need to pray more, give more, read the Bible more, study more, go to church more. It's this whole idea of retribution. And so what happens is that religious people tend to, um, they tend to reduce faith down to these formulas. 
do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Secular people tend to reduce these moments down to chemicals. And listen, there's nothing wrong with reading more, studying more, praying more, serving more, giving. There's nothing wrong with any of that. And there's nothing wrong with taking medication in moments like this when you find yourself in a season of depression. Nothing wrong with either one of those things, but neither of those things will most likely provide the ultimate answer. Because what we want to know is, is this my fault? I'll, we'll land it on, uh, on the last of the three friends. Uh, his name is Zophar in chapter um, 11, uh, verse 14. And he, ba- he just says it to Job. He just lays it all out. He says, put away the sin in your hand. He says, you just got to put the sin away, Job, because that's, that's, that's the problem here. And so what Job is learning um, is, are these two truths that are like train tracks. They travel alongside of each other. Um, they kind of never meet and there's always tension in between these two truths that God is absolutely trustworthy and we will never figure him out because he's God and we are not. And if you have a God that you can 100% figure out, he's probably not God, right? And it's this tension between these two things that yes, God is trustworthy and we'll never figure him out and we can't reduce him down to a formula. it's, It's throughout scripture. Look at Elijah. Elijah has a day. I mean, calls down fire from heaven on hundreds of Baal-worshipping prophets on this sacrifice. It's amazing. He prays an end to a three-year-long drought. And the next day, he's on the run. He's worried that Bath, uh, uh, excuse me, I, said Bath, I almost said Bathsheba, Jezebel is going to kill him. And he goes into this rock-bottom depression so deep that he asked God to kill him? He wants to die? And so how does, God, how does God react to that? Does God say, come on, dude, you're a prophet. You're not just a prophet, you're the prophet in Israel. Buck up, dude. Come on, chin up. Don't let this make you bitter. Let it make you better. Like, does God say things like, you know what God does? God sends an angel that cooks dinner for him. And after he eats dinner, you know what the angel tells him to do? Take a nap. And when he wakes up from the nap, you know what he does? The angel cooks him another meal. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is eat good food and take a nap. Got an amen on that. I like that. All right. It's, you'll never, uh, John, John chapter 9. Not, yeah, John chapter 9. Jesus and the disciples, they're walking down the street and there's a blind guy. Side of the road. And this just tells you how pervasive this is. This is not just Old Testament. This is New Testament. It's still us. It's still the way that we tend to look at things in our own humanity. They walk by and they're disciples. These are the, these are the, <laughs> these are the strike force. Like these are the, these are the Navy SEALs of discipleship in their world, right? I mean, Jesus has trained them and they walk by this guy. And what do they say? They're like, Jesus, who sinned that this guy was born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? It's so pervasive in the way that we think and the way that we look at the world. And what does Jesus say? Nah, he didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. But that the works of God might be worked. You're just not going to figure God out in these situations. There's no formula. It's a grieving process. We're all going to go through it differently. It's going to take longer for some of us. It's going to take a shorter time for some of us. Um, Some of the pieces are the same, but people don't go through them uh, sequentially all, all the time. 
So how do we do it? <laughs> how do we make it? It's encouragement. What we all need in situations and circumstances like these are friends. And so many times in my life, and I'm guessing in your life, God shows up in my life in the people that I love and who care about me. So I cannot encourage you strongly enough. I do not take for granted that just because you're at Gold Lake, you're connected to a church family. I cannot encourage you strongly enough. Number one, to be connected to a church family. Number two, to be connected to a smaller group of believers. This is not hyperbole when I say one of the blessings of our church in Columbus is we have some of the most fantastic life group leaders that you'll ever meet. And our great life group leaders have great coaches. 90% of our Sunday, average Sunday morning attendance number is in a life group at our church. And the reason is because we have such incredible life group leaders that in the moments of crisis, they show up and they cook meals and they transport kids and they help you however they can help you. And they do an incredible, incredible job. And oftentimes when I meet somebody who uh, goes through a difficult situation or circumstance and we talk about that, what ends up, the end run of the conversation when I ask is, so where, where are you churching? Where are you, who are the people? And they're like, well, you know, man, we tried this church. But when this happened, nobody contacted us. And so I don't know you and I don't know your personal situation so I can say this to the group. I wanna know, are you connected? Did you put any investment in? When you got to that church, did you connect to a group? Did you take the initiative? Did you try to care for somebody else so that in a moment it might occur to somebody else to care for you? Or are you just there to take? You see, it's incumbent upon all of us to be connected because in being there for others, what we'll find it's not only that others will be there for us, but I think, I think that we will find healing a lot in helping. And so the things that you've been through will become a blessing. You will comfort with the comfort wherewith you have been comforted, right? That's a biblical idea, not my idea. And so what you see in Job in this situation with his three friends is not isolated. It's not like, oh, poor Job, nobody's ever experienced that. Because you fast forward a couple of thousand years down the road, and here's, you know, here's Job, you know, his three buddies, you know, Mo, Larry, and Curly, right? His buddies who said all the wrong things to him and who did all the wrong things. But you fast forward a few thousand years, and on the night that Jesus needs his friends the most, he goes and grabs Peter, James, and John. And on a night when it is so cold, I'm, the weather it is so cold that Peter three times goes and warms himself by a fire. Jesus prays with such intensity that his sweat turns to drops of blood. On a night when he needs his friends the most, he goes against Peter, James, and John. He says, I need you to pray with me, fellas. I don't know if he's ever asked that from them before or anywhere else. In the God, guys, I need you right now. And they all fall asleep <laughs> when he needs them the most. The difference is, like I mentioned yesterday morning, that eventually we're going to get to the end of the book of Job, and Job is going to be rewarded. Jesus is rewarded with the cross and suffering. And he suffers, right? So when you think about retribution, instead of you and I getting what we earned, the scriptures say that he, he, God, made him, him, Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. 
that we, you and me, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So instead of us getting what we earned, (laughs) we get what Jesus earned for us on the cross. It's not retribution, rather it's salvation for us. So hopefully that salvation brings us to application. So how do you apply this? I was thinking whenever I walked in here yesterday, so this is the first time I couldn't come uh, to go like last summer because just things we had going on in the life of our church and schedules, it just didn't work. So the last time that I was here, um, Hoedown and Ambush and I standing right there and we had a conversation and that's when the room was still painted cream. Remember cream? And remember when the paint was falling off the ceiling uh, up there? And we had this conversation. We said, you know what? The 100 year anniversary is coming like, Man, we could really change the look of the tab. Like, we could go grayscale. Like, we could, we could completely change the look. We could get up there. We could get some scaffolds up there. We could scrape the ceiling. We could repaint it. And so I said, hey, we'll bring a group of guys from our church uh, up or from Columbus up, and we'll, we'll help. And so in the fall, um, we had a group of, of folks from Columbus uh, that drove up. Some of the, I think some of the folks here in this room who were even part of that team, and we laid down uh, tarps everywhere and we started painting up here high and starting to paint things gray and look different but the reason I'm telling you all that is to tell you that on my trip up here I rode with somebody that I, I had never met goes to a different church uh, in Columbus but is connected here uh, at Gull Lake and he has uh, three kids and um, one of his kids uh, uh, son um, developed a drug addiction when his son was 17, 18 years old mom and dad didn't know about it until they found a a syringe in his room. And this is two people who've gone to church, raised their family in church, done all the right things, done all the same things that you've done, all the same things I've done probably. And it wasn't just going to be a momentary thing. It was going to be a fight. And it was a fight to the degree as we talked through his story on the way up here. Um, he would leave their home at times and just disappear. And they wouldn't know. For time is he alive is he dead he'd be gone for a couple of months at a time sometimes he'd come home they'd have to lock up anything valuable and you think about that in your own home you have to lock up all your valuables because your child's going to steal from you trade those things in there were times when he had to physically restrain his son and he had to fight his son to not leave their home sometimes he won sometimes his son won destroyed their property eventually they lost their son to an overdose those kinds of things they don't you know not impact your marriage he and his wife didn't make it I remember looking at him sitting there in the car trying to think of the exact right thing to you know, I'm a pastor I'm supposed to know the answer right to this to this thing I didn't have an answer and I said what did you do like how do you deal with that here's what he said to me two things he said number one I have great friends he said I've got a group of men who surround my life And he said, they got me through it. And he said, here's the second thing. Whenever I hear a story about a family who's struggling with drug addiction, I just reach out. 
And he said, I have found healing in helping. So, I think about us this morning. What can we do? I think I can make a biblical argument to you that the most important Christian who's ever lived outside of Jesus, the most important Christian who's ever walked the planet is a guy named Joseph. I think I can make a biblical argument. Acts chapter 4, he sells a piece of property, brings all the proceeds, lays it at the feet of the disciples, and no one's ever done that. Hebrew people didn't sell land. It stayed in their family for generation, generation, hundreds, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. He sells a piece of property, brings the money to the church, lays it at the, the disciples' feet, and they say, we've never seen anything like this before. They're so wild. They say, we're changing your name from Joseph to Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Acts chapter 9, dramatic conversion. Saul, persecutor, murderer of Christians, road to Damascus. Um, they hear about it. The disciples hear about it, but they don't believe it. They think it's a trick, right? That Saul is just trying to suck them in, and then they're all going to be murdered, right? They'll all be crucified. And so they're all like, okay, who's going to go check this out? Who's going, to go, who's going to go hang out with Saul? And, you know, John didn't raise his hand. <laughs> Simon Peter didn't raise his hand. You know who raised his hand? Barnabas. Barnabas said, I'll go. And he goes and checks it out. And he comes back and he says, I think it's genuine. But we're not sure, so here's what I'll do. I'll take him on the trip with me. <laughs> now, listen, if, if he's wrong, he's going to the cross. Barnabas will be crucified if he's wrong. He said, I'll take him on a trip with me. And that trip turns into another trip. And they actually become a little mission team. And it's, it's Barnabas and Paul. When you read the book of Acts, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. That's not accidental. Barnabas was the leader. Paul was being mentored. You get to Acts chapter 13. They take a little mission trip. They invite another guy to come with them. A guy named John Mark, young guy. Never been on a trip before. They invite him to come. They go to Cyprus, which is Barnabas' hometown. They get to Barnabas' hometown for the first time. Paul's gifts outpace Barnabas's gifts in Barnabas's hometown. When they leave Cyprus, the book of Acts changes the language. Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. When you get after Cyprus, you know what it says? Then Paul and his companions left there. Now, wait a minute. This is his hometown, right? He was the lead name on the marquee before. Now he's a companion? And I would suggest to you that that's intentional on Barnabas's part. So they come back from that trip. Now, you know, in the middle of that trip, John Mark left them. He said, this is too tough. I'm not going to do, like, I thought this was a good idea. I'm not, but he deserts the mission. So they come back, Acts chapter 15, they're ready to go on another trip. They get together, Paul, Barnabas, they're like, hey, let's go. Let's go revisit all the churches that we planted. That's great. Barnabas says, okay, I'll get John Mark and we'll go. And Paul says, we're not taking him. He deserted us. And Barnabas says, oh, we're going to take him. We're going to take him. And Paul says, we're not taking him. And I think Barnabas probably says to Paul, hey, wait a minute. Who came to you when nobody believed you? Like, no one would come. And somebody had to come. We gave you a chance. Why wouldn't we give? And Paul's like, no, we're not taking him. And you know what Barnabas says? This is beautiful. Barnabas says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Paul, you go get Silas. You guys go that way. And I'm going to get John Mark. And I'm going to take him. And we're going to go this way. And you know where he takes him? Takes him right back to Cyprus, to his hometown. 
place where he knows the people and the people know him, where he knows John Mark's faith and gifts will grow. And from there, from Acts chapter 15, you know what? You never hear Barnabas' name mentioned ever again in the New Testament. Gone. Beautiful, wonderful self-forgetfulness of Barnabas. His name never has to be mentioned again. And really, you don't really know what happens until you get to the last book that Paul writes in the New Testament, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Paul writes this. He says, Luke alone is with me. Paul's like, all I got left is Luke. You know what he says? Send John Mark to me, for he is useful in ministry. Barnabas was right. Almost 60% of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul and by John Mark. This is the Gospel of Mark, author. I don't think there's any person who's any more influential in Christianity, in the history of Christianity, than the guy who helped mentor the two guys who wrote 60% of the New Testament. And all he did was encourage people. So, I think it would be a great idea for us this morning to take the opportunity to encourage somebody. So I'm going to pray here in a minute. And I want to pray. And I want to pray that God would lay somebody on your heart for you to encourage, like right now. Like, take your phone out right now. If you've got your phone, come up with a good Bible verse. You know somebody who's going through a Job-like situation. Maybe you say, you know, I don't have my phone with me. That's fine. Leave here. Go. We've got, we're going to have 10, 15 minutes before we start a session, grab a piece of paper, write somebody a note, go grab your phone, but don't put it off until later in the day because you know how that goes. I know how that goes in my life. You're going to put it off. But I'm going to pray that God would allow us to experience some healing in helping by being the kinds of people that we ought to be to, for us to become the sons and the daughters of encouragement, this encouragement that we have received from the cross that will open the vent of God's love to warm our hearts today. That instead of being worried about the blessings that we're receiving, to be a blessing to somebody else. All right, let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for um, the transformation that we see going on in Job's life. And even from the bad examples in his life, we see, God, the kinds of examples that we can be in one another's lives and in the lives um, of other people. And God, there are people who need us. And quite frankly, we need people to need us. Um, Lord, because in helping them, really, God, we're healing. And in helping them, we're finding joy. And so God, right now, I just pray by your spirit that you would lay somebody on everybody's heart in the room that your spirit would bring somebody to mind who could use a word of encouragement. And God, thank you for the blessing that we have of being able to be the people who get to deliver it. That just like you brought us encouragement, we can do the very same in the lives of other people. Our lives will be better for it. God, our lives will be more joyful today because of it. So God, we pray. Give us people in this moment. Give us away. It's in your name we pray. Amen.